Welcome everyone to episode 11 of the Greater European Talks. Today we are discussing Eurasia, which to us is more of a wider concept of Europe and Asia, rather maybe a traditional view of sort of Central Asia or Russian-influenced Asia. Um, my name is Philippe, as always joining you from Leuven, Belgium, and with me today is Timothy, one of our writers in southern France. Can say hello? Hi everyone. And today we'll be talking about two aspects from quite a similar angle, and that is myself, I'll be talking about the recently ratified uh, free trade agreement between the EU and Vietnam, and what that means for both, of course, the economy, but also the politics between the EU and uh, Southeast Asia, which is quite an important developing area. And Timothy will be talking a little bit about the resumption of negotiations um, on an agreement between the UK and Japan post-Brexit, Japan being a very important actor in the British economy, and what that means for, similarly, European economic and political relationships with Japan. So, Timothy, take it away. What grabbed your interest and why do you think it's important? Thank you, Philip. So, um, last Tuesday, the negotiations between the UK and Japan resumed for a post-Brexit trade deal that is supposedly based on the um, European Union and Japan Economic Partnership Agreement that was signed in February 2019. Um, it is important to notice, obviously, uh, what Philip has just said, that Japan is a very important actor for the British economy, being its fourth non-European partner. And the amount of um, trade between both countries amounts to uh, roughly 32 billion, dollar, 32 billion pounds um, a year. And this deal would aim at increasing by 50 billion pounds a year in the long run the trade, um, trade discussions, trade exchanges between these two countries. Um, they mostly aim at removing tariff barriers um, and allowing some free data flows and especially AI cooperations between both partners. And this is something that shows that this, um, this agreement would be very much like the uh, European Union-Japan uh, agreement that was signed last year. Um, but we'll see that there are some different interests and different situations that are at work here. If we take a look at Japan, for instance, um, one must know that Japan is very furious at the UK for um, having chosen Brexit, because Japan has been investing in UK infrastructures and the UK economy for many years. And since Japan has managed to strike a somewhat good deal with the EU, uh, they expect to strike an even better one with, with the UK with more favorable terms. Because for the, for the Japanese, it seems to be a bit more, um, a bit more simple, a bit simpler to, to strike a deal with the UK since it won't require some consensus between the 27 actors uh, that the, EU, the, the EU um, requires for a trade deal. And Japan's interest obviously lies in tariff barriers for automotive parts and automobiles for its um, exports. And this is why Japan has refused this week to uh, have the UK copy-paste the deal that was signed with the EU because they obviously want to get more favorable terms for, for them. And what's also important is that um, this trade deal would be a very um, convenient foothold for Japan between the EU and between the United States so as to expand its image of a um, free trade champion. 
Now, if we take a look at the UK, um, what really matters in this deal is twofold, it, uh, namely economics and reputation. This deal obviously aims at stimulating um, economic, economic uh, exchanges and exports after Brexit and the COVID-19 crisis. And since Japan is the world's third economy, um, the UK would find it very convenient. But would find it also uh, all the more convenient as this deal could be seen as a stepping stone to join the very long treaty that is named Comprehensive and Progressive Agreement for Trans-Pacific Partnership, which uh, is... TTIP. Yes, the, exactly. And it's really important for Britain to, for the UK to join um, this treaty because it's one of the world's largest free trade areas. It, uh, I think it covers something like 13% of uh, world GDP. But what also matters for the UK is a matter of reputation because they need to restore trust for Japanese investment since Sony, Panasonic and Mitsubishi moved some operations to Germany and the Netherlands after Brexit. But also there is an issue of legitimacy related to um, the Brexit electorate. So I have a small anecdote and story to tell you. In February 2019, Honda, so the main Japanese um, car maker, Honda announced it will close its factory um, that was based in Swindon, which is roughly between London and Bristol. Uh, it will close this factory by 2021, uh, thus terminating the contract of 3,500 workers in Swindon. And do you know what Swindon workers and voters voted for in 2016? Shooting Brexit. Yes, exactly. They voted massively for Brexit, 55% majority for Brexit in Swindon. So this trade deal, uh, in the light of such a small anecdote, well, an important anecdote, um, shows that um, Brexit should not be tantamount to protectionism for Johnson. And that this is the image that he's trying to, to show the world. But, and I'll end with this, um, there are some hurdles for this deal. And especially related to this idea that the UK should not come across as protectionist, it would seem to come across as being a bit too liberal for Japan at some points. Recently, um, the, uh, well, the United Kingdom has recently allowed to um, allow in the UK some imports of chlorinated chicken from the US through a dual tariff uh, regime. And... Um, this somewhat gives the idea that the UK would be lowering its standards uh, in comparison with the EU, which is quite at odds with the high standards diplomacy that Japan is always trying to, um, to implement. But the most important hurdle between um, Japan and the UK related to this treaty is the fact that um, Michel Barnier, who's in charge, the, chief, the EU chief negotiator for Brexit, has recently announced that no significant progress had been made um, for, for Brexit and that uh, London would somehow be willing to block talks and not, and not honour its commitments. So this, um, this event somehow lowers credibility, um, credibility of the UK and is a source of uncertainty for Japan, which then refuses to dance to London's tune. And this is, uh, as a conclusion, something that might evidence one of the um, so many trade agreements obstacles that the UK will find on its post-Brexit path. Very interesting. I think the first question I have between that is obviously, uh, as you mentioned, there is currently an EU agreement with Japan, mm -hmm. very much loud one. It was a very big deal when it was uh, signed. 
and um, I'm not certain if it's entirely enforced yet. Uh, maybe you can correct me on that. The, the um, economic agreement is enforced now. It is now properly enforced. Yes. Good. Um, I guess what are the main sacrifices that Japan made for that, for the EU, that they're not willing to make for the UK? Well, it's mostly about agriculture, for instance. Because um, since this agreement with the EU somehow erases almost 99% of all the trade barriers, um, the EU uh, has gained access for some recognition of its um, of some of its main uh, main um, brands, for instance, um, Parmigiano, Champagne, that will be allowed in Japanese um, well to reach the Japanese market, and so Japan is very much afraid that um, such a similar clause. With with the UK would further undermine its um, the stable basis of its agricultural system. So that that would be one of the of the main points. But I guess um, Japan would want to also expand this uh, deal with the UK um, because precisely it would enable them to benefit from both the EU and the uh, and the UK, which which won't be in the EU anymore, obviously. But it would somehow open um, further doors with the US, for instance. Yeah, that's interesting. Would you mind elaborating on that? You know, um, for example, I, I don't. Is there any concrete economic agreement between Japan and the US other than the uh, than the, the protocols back in the seventies? Well, Japan has many agreements with the US, and especially with um, related to uh, these automobile industry. Um, back to the nine, back in the nineties, Japan started having many important companies um, gaining um, proper access in the US, Honda being the very best example of this. And so um, what would be interesting, I guess, as, a, as an economic strategy for Japan uh, between the UK and the US is that the UK has not yet, uh, the UK is yet to strike a commercial deal with, uh, with the US. And so what Japan is currently aiming at is providing some blueprints for further mm. deals and because what Japan actually wants to do is to use some of its soft power, some of its hegemony, to implement some standards that it will benefit in the ver- benefit from in the very end. So that would be a strategy as well. I see. Yeah. Was Japan one of the main um, uh, benefactors of the TTIP then, which the US, if I'm correct, was originally a part of but pulled out later? Exactly, um, because this deal is very important for um, for Japan, especially um, because there is this uh, um, new economic zone that it aims at creating um, against China, mostly. Exactly, yeah. But w- is there any news on whether the UK will be allowed to join? I mean, the word Pacific, I believe, is in the name of the agreement. The UK is bordering many oceans, but uh, not quite the Pacific. Well, uh, the UK hasn't. Um, there isn't any. Rec- there hasn't been any recent development as to the UK joining uh, this uh, this agreement. But obviously, it is one step towards this um, this accession to the to the agreement because it is of highly strategic value for the UK. I think I can't remember which, but um, the United Kingdom has one small island in the uh, in the Pacific Let's Ocean. Let's think. L- looking around on the map. Uh, I'm sure. Th- I'm sure there are a few. I'm sure there's one or two. Yes. Yeah, something like that. So um, that would. And also, what is what is what is highly important is that in this agreement there are such countries as Canada or Australia, which are part of the Commonwealth. 
So that would mm -hmm. be yet another strategic argument for the UK to join this. But I don't think there's been any um, further development related to this issue. Mm -hmm. Speaking from a British perspective, I know during the, uh, the Brexit campaign and following it, and especially from the chancellors, um, I believe that uh, yeah, the former chancellor, Sajid Javid, mentioned it as well. The idea of a Commonwealth free trade agreement or, you know, indeed these large agreements, the the thing that holds the most promise for them right now is definitely the TTIP. And I think if it wasn't for the fact that there's still so many questions around, it would be one of their major policies. Um, and I wouldn't be surprised to hear yeah, that acronym be banded around the UK a bit more often, especially because it's not toxic in the same way that the UK-US agreement is, which is a big question of standards and everything. Because if you look at the standards of not all, but many of those in the TTIP, I believe Chile is also a member. Yes, there's Chile and Peru. Exactly, yeah. Um, so they will be yeah, very welcome, I think. It's, it's a very interesting one. And politically, so you mentioned how, and it's all quite clear how obviously the UK and especially conservatives rely on this whole freewheeling liberalism. But Japanese politics, always a confusing and slightly difficult one for Western mm -hmm. listeners. Is there any benefit for Abe Shinzo in this? Does his party actually have this? It has a liberal moniker. It's done a huge amount in terms of liberal agreements and trade in the past several years. But is the UK actually priority in this? Would it help them politically? Would it hinder them, perhaps? Well, I think the UK is important for them because um, what Shinzo, what Abe Shinzo is currently trying to do is namely expand economically in order to somehow forestall Chinese advance and to uh, check this advance and so he's really based um, well Shinzo Abe um, his primary goal is uh, evidenced by the um, by the name Abenomics namely his Perhaps. economic program he did the same for womenomics when trying to further integrate women in the economy uh, Abe Shinzo was elected for economic purposes and what he really um, succeeds in is delivering the Japanese with many, many um, free trade agreements. I think in the past four years, Japan has, uh, has signed more than 76 free trade agreements. Um, I, I remember that uh, when we were in Japan, both of us, by the way, yes. context, were in Japan under the Murai program. Um, they mentioned how... No country has gone from being so closed to so open within such a short amount of time, really. And I think the Japanese are quite happy with it, mostly, because um, Abe Shinzo's economic policy is getting quite popular and especially related to this whole um, network of expanding worldwide. And this is why Japan has signed these, deal, these deals with the EU, with the UK. And if I might say, the UK is not that strategic for Japan, but somehow it has a major importance because it is still a way to make sure that, the, that Japan um, has diverse ties in the face of uh, an uncertain American ally. Obviously, Trump is going, well, the United States is going to back Japan. But Trump is being so unpredictable and withdrawing some from so many treaties that Japan is feeling quite um, uncertain and terrified by the prospect of a weakened uh, American alliance. Very true, very true. I think there's also quite a lot of sim uh, symbols between the two. Both islands sort of offer very powerful yes. government. 
Um, I know Chatham House did a very interesting 100-year review. Like, it was 100 years since, like, embassies were established. And, uh, yeah, they found a lot of very interesting security dynamics as well. Yes, of exactly. Japan's trying to in- increase its security capabilities. Um, and the UK still remains one of the most largest weapons exporters and training. So I think that's quite an interesting one. I think my last question um, let us play that dangerous game of crystal ball gazing. <laughs> um, what, in your opinion, uh, will be the result of this if there is an agreement? I think we can be certain there will eventually be an agreement. That's almost certain. Do you honestly think the Japanese will get what they want? Or do you think things will turn in the British's favour? Honestly, I do believe that it's not. It's more a question of symbolism rather than actual uh, economic prospects. Obviously, there are some billions of dollars that are at stake. It's undeniable. But let us remind, remember that Japan is only um, the United Kingdom's eleventh trading partner, fourth non-European, but eleventh. So it's not that a major partner. It's important. There's no denying it. But it's not that central. And so I do believe that what Japan is currently doing is. Um, this work of expansion that I was talking about, and it actually doesn't matter if it's not that important because the uh, the goal of Japan is really to secure an agreement before um, before the end of the year because it's not that sure regarding recent development recent developments that uh, Brexit will happen with a um, proper deal uh, due to Michel Barnier's um, concerns that were um, that were mentioned last week. So I think it's a matter of safety that they're trying to um, push this forward a little bit in order to gain time. But honestly, I don't think it will be that uh, impacting on, on, on Japan, although it will inevitably lead to some benefit um, benefit effects for uh, Japanese economy, especially in terms of um, industrial exports, cars okay. mostly. Cars, of course, yes. Okay, well, thank you very much, Timothy. It's a very interesting one. And we're not going too far away from that discussion, really, to talk about our next topic, which is the EU-Vietnam Free Trade Agreement. So the EU, of course, as one of its main competencies, and to be honest, its main strength in the world, is its free trade agreements. And it's sort of freewheeling economic power across the world. Now, Vietnam, uh, whilst only, I believe, 17th in sort of list of trade between the EU, um, is important because it is the second largest trading partner within ASEAN, the Association of Southeast Nations. Um, This is a socio-economic political bloc um, made in the wake of the the 70s. It's been growing quickly stronger and stronger across the region. It has, for example, the Philippines, Indonesia, Singapore, um, uh, yeah, Vietnam, Laos, all of the sort of countries of Southeast Asia. And it is quickly becoming a very important economic driver in the world. So ASEAN itself as a bloc actually constitutes the third largest partner behind the US and China and continues to be one of the fastest growing regions on Earth economically. And of those, Vietnam is also one of the largest growing. It's uh, second only to Singapore. The Singapore is, of course, limited by size, whereas Vietnam still has a lot to develop from. Um, and very interestingly, it's also taking a lot away from China in terms of factories. China, whilst no doubt one of the most impressive economies in the world, um, is no longer as much the producer of the world as it used to be. And Vietnam is one of the main benefactors of this. Anyway, to step back a little bit, 
the EU um, in 2007 was given by the Council, the European Council, um, approval to start negotiating free trade agreements with Southeast Asian countries in general. Uh, most of these have stalled. The only real successes have been, uh, of course, the Singapore one, the negotiations with the Philippines and Indonesia are still ongoing. Uh, but Vietnam, in fact, ratified the agreement four days ago, uh, sorry, six days ago on the 8th of June, um, after it passed all of the various um, stages. And much like the Japanese one, it seeks to cut out 99% of tariffs and, quite interestingly, has a very strong investor protection uh, agreement. Now, the EU is in fact the largest investor in Vietnam now, very recently pushing out the US as the largest investor, which is quite important to the EU. And I think this is a big part of the EU's gambit to just become more of a, uh, just a more concrete and stronger partner with Southeast Asian nations, who very rarely, to be honest, look to the EU as any significant um, respect, despite, of course, the similarities you can put between ASEAN and the EU. I think ASEAN is probably one of the most effective and impressive regional arrangements outside the EU. Um, I don't think any other organisations, even the African Union, are quite as successful. Um, and I think it's a growing reproachment between the two organisations that shows, yeah, uh, an interesting alternative almost to the sort of very state-based future many people are looking at with China as a powerful country or the US continuing to be, or even Russia as an individual country. I think ASEAN still holds as quite an important um, outlier in the state-based world um, and it'll be very interesting to see how they continue. So that was kind of my major spiel about mm -hmm. it. But what's also important to mention, I guess, is also that China and Vietnam, um, since the 1990s, really, they fought a border conflicts since their reunification in the late 70s, Vietnam, that is South Vietnam and North Vietnam. Um, and in fact, very recently, it's become a lot more controversial. Most of this is owing, of course, to the South China Sea, or I assume they call it by a different name, um, which... China and Vietnam, unlike some of the other ASEAN members who are only tangentially involved, Indonesia, for example, um, Vietnam contradicts with every aspect of China's claiming on the South China Sea. And very recently, in June, in fact, has rammed Chinese fishing boats who are fishing outside of these artificial islands the Chinese have created. Um, and this has turned a lot of the Vietnamese public, at least, especially not the government, um, towards anti-Chinese sentiments which might be echoed in the Vietnamese response to, for example, their agreements with Europe, their agreements with the US, and kind of their repositioning in the area. At one point, it was seen that Vietnam could just be potentially another one of China's closest friends. Um, but this is looking less and less likely, really, as uh, the times go on. And um, I believe that one of the first sort of sacrifices that China is going to make in terms of its friendly neighbours is going to be at Vietnam. And I think the EU, with this agreement and with many of the other investments, will be well positioned to replace China in this respect as one of the more favoured actors in the country. It's interesting that you should mention the rivalry between Vietnam and China, because just today, a Chinese ship attacked a Vietnam boat in the South China Sea. 
um, some some Chinese military hijacked a um, a Vietnamese fishing boat. So it's quite um, it's quite a current topic. In fact, I just had a question, some a couple of questions, of course, about your. Um, about the agreement between um, between the EU and Vietnam, um, what will be the major parts, the major points about economic exchange in this agreement? What will they, what will they bear upon? So uh, a huge amount of it will be processing manufacturing. Really, the EU is investing heavily in that. So as I mentioned, um, a lot of the factories that China has and had um, are no longer as economically viable as they used to be. And Vietnam is replacing this. Of course, you cannot deny the the cheap labor mm-hmm. in Vietnam. It probably has at this very moment one of the most um, easily accessible labor markets in the world. Um, and the EU is very interested in getting involved in this. But for example, so manufacturing, um, and of course, this has huge implications across the EU. The EU being very good at sort of the the later stages, so it could use Vietnam's expertise, um, and then also agriculture as well. Of course, huge quantities of rice um, and a lot of other forms of agriculture that uh, are just in such plentiful quantities. And combined with the low labour means the EU will be especially favourable with that. And on the other way round, Vietnam is one, also one of the um, biggest locations, even before China was such a huge uh, production, of uh, luxury goods. So a huge amount of luxury goods are actually made in Vietnam. And then shipped to the US or the EU to sell. And that will actually remain one of the most important points for Vietnamese um, product managers and you know, factory specialists, et cetera, et cetera, who want to sort of gain a lot bigger access into the market of luxury goods, luxury items, which have had a huge history of making and are finding a position to actually thrive in this, um, especially in the EU. It's, uh, countries like Italy and Spain have become so invested in this. Um, so I think that's the way both sides are looking at it. Mm-hmm. Remains to be seen, you know, exactly which one will become stronger than the other. You know, the main export to the EU, as mentioned, electronic products, yes. uh, footwear. Footwear is a huge one. A huge amount of every luxury footwear will be made in Vietnam. It's a very popular one. Look at look at where they're made. And a lot of them are made there and then, then put into the EU um, for their own. You mentioned cheap labor at some point. Um, will the EU, the EU be trying to um, advocate some new standards, some quality standards in this deal, as it always does um, based on its high standards diplomacy? 100%. Um, there's no doubt about it that uh, it's another of the EU's sort of conditionality uh, FTAs. You know, most famously with South Korea, they introduced the idea of having environmental protection high up on the list. That is included very, very heavily in the Vietnamese one. Vietnam, for example, responded in kind. It has one of the largest tree planting operations in the world. It's also trying to sort of redevelop itself in a lot more of a green way and worker securities as well. Now, this is very, compre- uh, this is very controversial, of course. Uh, work protection in most countries across the world, really not even just in Asia, in the EU also it's lacking. Um, but there are a lot of, sort of promoting of standards, uh, standards of production, as you said, worker rights. It remains to be seen in the final agreement, what aspects were ratified or not. Although it's been ratified, it's not yet in force, and said only got signed in the Vietnamese parliament um, six days ago. Um, 
but I think in the actual FTA, there's not as much in the work protection. A lot of it is in the investor protection agreement, which sort of looks at how investors can are protecting their investments and where they can invest. Um, this still has aspects of it to be renegotiated. It is a separate agreement as a whole. Um, so it remains to be seen, really. But definitely, I think where services are related, because the EU cares a lot about its agreement on services, but there will be a lot stronger protection. I don't think there'll be as much in terms of worker rights, for example, factory rights, um, because those are things that I think many countries look at more domestically. Um, and I'm not certain, yeah, I'm not certain of Vietnam's particular you know, national outlook on worker protections. Mm-hmm. It ensures not as high as the EU's, but um, yeah, it's very different, very different kind of uh, national legislation on it. I think it's quite interesting to parallel the um, agreement with Vietnam with the agreement with um, Japan because it somehow evinces how European diplomacy in the region, in Southeast and Northeast Asia, is very much based on values and very much based on on economics because um, there's this principle, this foreign policy principle by the European Union um, that it was specifically designed for the region that is called principled neutrality. And I think it's quite interesting because principled neutrality means that the EU actually bluntly refuses to um, take position for whichever side uh, related to um, territorial claims and um, tensions uh, in South China Sea for these Pratley Islands or Paracel Islands, for instance, that um, pit China against um, against Vietnam. So I think it's quite interesting that we should um, parallel both agreements with Japan and Vietnam because they drastically they really uh, evince evidence this um well this very um th- this particular side of european diplomacy in the region mm-hmm. i think it's also that europe itself has had troubles understanding which values it wants to promote globally mm-hmm. uh, because also they're, they're very different between them sure there are sort of the three essentials um but the economic the economy by the fact it's obviously the eu's main sole competence um outside negotiations it's just everything is set up for that to be the main area for it to work on and in asia especially um you know with the, the historical ties many eu member nations have uh, with many other countries in southeast asia and asia in general um they yeah see the pure economic view of it as the way forward really um and i'll mention one more thing actually about vietnam is the um it's actually how it relates to a lot of the security aspects in the area. It has quite a large military, um, not obviously the, the largest in ASEAN, um, but definitely uh, a very strong one. And this is another way, like Japan, for it to thrive on the world stage, really, by getting so involved. And what we see is some of the security arrangements in the area, most notably the US, uh, India, Australia and New Zealand pact which they look at sort of securing the Indian Ocean. Um, they started debating whether Vietnam should be a part of this, which was having Vietnam so close, and of course the main reason for this being to stop um, Chinese uh, undue influence in the region, um, has meant that Vietnam has successfully uh, transformed what might just be economic negotiations between the two, between the many, um, into an interesting security parallel. 
Vietnam is worried militarily about China, as is Japan. Maybe not so much because it does still have incredibly good relations between uh, China and itself, both historically and contemporarily. Um, but I think it's just part of, yeah, an overall slow pivot away from China in that respect, as it can no longer really trust the country as much. Then again, this is a very Western view. You cannot deny that the Chinese Vietnam trade, the Chinese ASEAN trade is huge. Um, it probably won't replace it at any point. But um, the politics, I think, always precedes a lot of these sort of deals and negotiations. And it's clear that there is some kind of strategy that's being pursued here um, that uh, pits Vietnam and the EU more into one corner. Um, whether this will remain the case, whether China will begin to use its huge influence more effectively across the region, um, we shall see. I think a lot of it depends on negotiations over the South China Sea at the moment, um, whether they're successful or not, whether they're within an Asian framework or not, um, has big implications for the rest of the region. And of course, the EU's influence and the EU's actions in the region too. Mm -hmm. So the billion dollar question will be, how do you think China will react to this? Do they... Does the Chinese government see it as some sort of uh, encroaching um, on the part of the EU? Yes, I mean, it, it has and now is strong enough to say what it feels, um, which is sort of a marked uh, move away from the Deng Xiaoping sort of be quiet about it. Um, and now it's certainly going to not necessarily attack the influence, but just highlight its own huge influence in the area about its bilateral deals um, and everything of that nature and how like the fact that both share a border is something the EU will never be able to outcompete China but I do believe that economically Vietnam will begin to pose itself as a competitor in certain areas certain limited fields let's say like textile industry for instance textile industry yeah certain things they farm certain electronic products themselves. Um, a lot of countries especially talk now about redeveloping the global supply chain. And if there's one country that's probably going to be the most influential in taking away some of the global supply chain opportunities that China has, it is Vietnam. Yeah, and I think it's quite interesting because Vietnam seems to be quite on the crest of the wave nowadays because they managed very well, economically speaking, during the pandemic. So it's quite a um, it's quite the Vietnam moment right now, economically speaking. Agreed, agreed. And of course, once, much like China's shown, like every country sees, if you're riding the wave economically, you will eventually ride it politically too. And I think, um, yeah, a lot of domestic political issues still remain, of course, um, whilst it is actually a surprisingly stable country compared to many of its uh, neighbours. Um, in how they deal with uh, national issues. Still a lot to, to change, really. I guess um, it's hopeful is the interesting <laughs> aspect out of all of this situation, especially in these pandemic times. It's a hopeful story that I think will materialise into quite a... Um, it's something we'll be going back to in the future, mm -hmm. quite a... In, to see how they develop. And if it succeeds, what will be interesting as well is to see if other nations across ASEAN change their mind. Um, many have stopped negotiating in the mid-2000s, seeing the EU as either an unimportant actor or focusing on other aspects. Um, personally, I think that 
if the benefits of this uh, free trade agreement with Vietnam shine, um, other countries will continue their negotiations. The Philippines, I know, is also under Duarte has been less active, um, but I think it has also been highlighting the possibility of this agreement. And also depends, of course, a huge amount on what the U.S. does in the area. No EU action, to be honest, can be separated from U.S. action completely. Um, and so we'll see what a future administration believes, because the current administration has been somewhat confused with their action to Southeast Asia um, and how China responds to it. It will also be interesting to see how this uh, other capitalist communist regime will react to the diffusion of EU standards and EU trade deals in the region, just like China, in fact. It will be interesting to see that as well in the future. Very true, very true. Well, thank you very much, Timothy, for joining us. Thank you, Philippe. And, well, us, it's only the two of us, <laughs> <but> still. <laughs> and to all the listeners, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Uh, next week, we'll be discussing a, another region that we're going to focus on the Institute, and that, of course, Russia and Eastern Europe, probably one of our most uh, common and most listened to regions. So make sure to check in for that. Otherwise, please follow us on all social medias we have, Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, etc. Um, we hope you have a good week. For those of you still under quarantine, best of luck. I hope you all thrive in these times and do the best that you can. Um, and for the rest of you not in quarantine, consider yourselves lucky. Um, thank you very much and have a wonderful day. Goodbye.